Hello, this is Gidon Ratatin, and this is Perak Gimel, chapter 3 of the book of Yechezkel. Nope, of the book of Mishle, I apologize. Chapter 3 of the book of Mishle, that is the, cha- the book we are studying now, the book of Proverbs. And like previous chapters, this is a chapter that's going to jump from topic to, po- to topic, although in this first part of the book it will still uh, mostly surround issues of wisdom and finding wisdom and Torah and how that should work in our lives and goodness in our lives, and we'll see that. And today we will be using the commentary of the Ralbag, a 13th century, no, a late 13th, early 14th century uh, Provençal Jew. He lived in the south of France, and he's known as a philosopher. He wrote important books of philosophy. He's also known as a Tanakh commentator. That's how he was known to most of Jewish history, because his philosophy book was, for those who study philosophy, but his Commentaries on several books in Navi were published in the Mikroket in the Mikroket version of Navi, and that's how many people knew him throughout uh, throughout history. Our question will be what his take is on this chapter of Mishle. So the chapter opens up with Bini Torati Al Tishkach Bacha. Don't forget my Torah and keep my mitzvot. The Ralbag does not choose to comment here on other occasions or in like chapter four, which we'll see. You'll see tomorrow. Uh, the, the Gra, the Vilna Gaon, contrast Torah and Mitzvot in ways in the ways in which they affect the human who is trying to serve God. But the Rabbah does not go in any way in that in that direction. Torah and Mitzvot, the pasuk says, will add to you life, long days and years of life and peace. They will add to you. The question would be then would be. In what way does Torah add to your life? There are many ways you could have answered that question. The Rabbi's answer, I find, <laughs> I'm trying to avoid the phrases that I always say. I've been listening to tapes of myself and I hear myself saying the same phrases over and over again. The Rabbag doesn't give the answer you might ordinarily have expected and then you'd have the reaction to think about what it is that he's saying. He says that people have a natural, ordinary life. He doesn't say the words natural and ordinary. I'm translating that into our terms. He says according to the order of the stars, meaning you're living in the... 1300s in the south of France, you believe that astrology has an actual physical impact on your life. You think that's just the way the universe works. Modern science rejects that whole idea, but if you translate it into our terms, it would be, you would say that genetically you're born with a certain lifespan. So if the person is born with a lifespan of 85 years, for example, and after 85 years, this genetic makeup will tend to break down and lead to such system failures that the person would ordinarily pass away. Ralbag believes, I think I might have said Radak before, I apologize, Ralbag believes that Pazik Bek Yorach Yomim Shlot Chayim Shalom is telling you that the proper involvement in Torah and Mitzvot will earn you greater divine providence. The more you study and learn or involve with Hashem, the more divine providence you get. And from that divine providence, you will get a life that will lead you to have better outcomes and therefore to longer life over and above what was originally decreed for you. The literal translation of would be let fidelity and steadfastness not leave you, sounding like you're supposed to be doing and keeping it in mind and tying it around your neck and writing it on the tablets of your heart, meaning making sure to remember it all the time. Instead, taking a move that would have been different than the ordinary interpreter might have done, the ordinary commentator, he says, chesed means, chesed don't let God, who is the master of kindness and truth, leave you. And by doing that, you'll always be involved in seeing how Hashem runs the world and thinking about that. And if you tie, and therefore, Rebbe Bag says, if you tie, you're supposed to tie mitzvot around 
So he sees the subject having switched. Chesed v'ma yalazvucha is really the one who commanded them, but then kashrei Gagrotecha is actual actions of mitzvah, and by doing those and thinking about them and talking about it all the time, you will then have them in your heart all the time. This is the focus of Rabbi as a philosopher. He's much more focused on the impact of mitzvah on you internally. He's imp- he, it's important that they have the external impact as well and creating a better world. But the vital nature and the vital aspect of it for Ralbag is what they will do to you internally, which will then earn you hashkacha, divine providence, which will then make your life come out better. And you will find grace and sechotov and good favor, good insight in the eyes of God and man. According to the Ralbag, the way that it's God and man is that if you do the mitzvot right, which are filled with proper and good character, you'll find out that people will like you. And then, if you delve into them further and understand the wisdom behind them, you will get closer to Hashem. And in that way, you will learn both divine providence and human approbation, people liking you. To remember from this Pasuk then, or at least in the Ralbag's assumption is, that the way what Mishle is telling us is the proper fulfillment of Torah produces a result that people, now who the people are, but people will like you for. That would suggest, and the lines here are very difficult to draw, but that would suggest that if somebody is fulfilling Torah, but people are not happy with him, and it produces a lifestyle that disgusts other people. Now, sometimes it's a problem because, let's say you had idol worshippers who were strongly in favor of idol worship, and you're promoting a lifestyle that does not involve idol worship, that involves serving the one God, it's not clear how you would find the chen v'seichotov in the eyes of those idol worshippers. You might argue that you'll end up being a very nice fellow anyway, and that even though they strongly disagree with you in your monotheism, and they see that as unfortunate, nonetheless they'll feel the need to like you. That would then mean that the ways that we deal with other people would be ways of pleasantness, which we'll see later in this paragraph anyway, would be pleasant and enjoyable to them, even if we have strong disagreements, and and that part of being a fully Torah-observant person would find a way to be pleasant to such people as long as we're not vividly, uh, as long as we're not actively fighting against them because of what situation. That's one possibility. Or the possibility is that we don't mean all people. Those people who are evildoers, we don't feel the need to find chen v'seichotov in, but that other people who appreciate who we are, they there we will find chen v'seichotov. And then already it becomes a question of who do we care about, who do we not care about, and that's how you get a situation where people who see themselves as fully Torah observant and would like to see themselves as Torah observant learn not to care about certain people's opinions because then they can just say, well, those are the people who are rishaim, I don't need to care about them. To think about where the balance of those equations is, is uh, I think uh, an important topic for a Jew to be working on. It would seem to be, and there are Mishnah and Pekeh Avot that say the same thing, it would seem to be that the ba- the baseline is that if you're a fully observant Jew, that other people will, other people in general, will by and large enjoy you and get along with you and think well of you. In addition to Hashem. Hashem here says that when you're doing all this, you have to always be looking and attempting and striving to get to understand and serve Hashem and to trust in Hashem and not to rely on yourself. And he points out one of the dangers that people who work on wisdom is that at some point you might say to yourself, ah, I already understand. I already know what I'm supposed to do. I've already done it smart, wise, well, and it's all going to work out okay. Because I've put in the work, I've put in the effort, and I'm a smart guy, so I built my business the right way, and I made this investment in the stock market the right way, and I've done this, and it's all going to work out fine. And what Mishle is telling you is that that's incorrect. And this is coming 
from a philosopher who you might have thought would rely very much on the intellect. And what he's pointing out is the point of intellect and the point of thinking is to understand hashkacha better. And the point of understanding hashkacha better is to get close to Hashem better, and then you will have Hashem's presence with you, which is in fact the only way that one can have any confidence of having good outcomes. Pasuk Vav continues that idea. If you in all your ways try to know Hashem, then Hashem will straighten out the path in front of you because you will have, according to Allah, you will have hashkacha, you will have providence, and then your life will go yachasit more smoothly, will go relatively more smoothly. We'll come to this again at the end of the parak, so I'm not going to fully talk about it now, but I will just point out this pasuk, pasuk vav in Perak Gimel is a central pasuk not just for Ralbai, but it's a central pasuk for the Rambam and many who came after him. The Rambam uses this pasuk to tell you that the ideal of Judaism is that every single one of a person's actions should be weighed by whether or not they contribute to his avodat Hashem, his or her service of God. And the, the examples he gives are, when you go to sleep, are you sleeping because it's pleasurable? Or are you sleeping because it will restore your energy to serve Hashem? Some people have taken that to mean, I'm not promoting them, some people have taken that to mean you sleep only the minimum that you need to be able to go, to go on. But the Ram doesn't necessarily say that. He might say you need to sleep the right amount so that when you move throughout your day, you have the energy and the sense of self to be able to serve Hashem fully and properly. And the same thing can be said about vacations or about physical pleasures. The Rabbi, when he talks about Yom Tov, he talks about physical pleasures, he's very in favor of enjoying the physical pleasures of meat and wine, whatever it would be, and fine clothing to some extent because those rejuvenate us and make us feel good and make us feel able to serve Hashem better. The question is, are we weighing those exactly? Or are we doing them to serve ourselves and serve our appetites and our enjoyments? But that's a puzzle that's vital and central around the view of the world. For Al-Bag, it goes in a slightly different direction. It's not we should be weighing all our actions in that way. It's is that we have to always be turning to Hashem and the fear for Al-Bag is that we will get so used to relying on ourselves and thinking of ourselves as bright and smart and intelligent and saying that therefore we don't need to rely on Hashem. And this puzzle then continues that theme. Don't think then that there comes a point where you don't have to be thinking about Hashem and trying to understand Hashem, that you've gotten far enough and now you can leave that project aside. You already know Chochmah and therefore you don't have to worry about anything anymore. Right? I understand now how the body works. I understand how to protect myself by eating the right foods or drinking green tea or having a glass of wine. Whatever it is that I think I can do and exercising this and this. And therefore... I no longer need to be searching and thinking about Hashem. And Ral Bag says part of what the problem with that is is that in doing so you will lose the right to your Hashkacha. You will lose the right to having your divine providence and the whole thing will fall apart because in his understanding of the system the way the world works is not by laws of nature. It's the laws of nature, we'll see in a second, are those that lead us to think about Hashem and to know about Hashem, the regularity of it. But then there's also the matter of Hashkacha. And if we turn towards Hashem in all our ways, then we will get the Hashkacha. And if we don't, then we don't, um, we don't get the Hashkacha. And he says, he says explicitly, this was one of the accusations leveled at philosophers before, during and after Rabbi's time was that they really didn't believe you needed a mitzvah. They all only believed you needed a good intellect. And mitzvah were a way to get a good intellect. But once you got the good intellect, you'd be okay and you wouldn't have to worry about it anymore. So the Rabbi explicitly says, that's a mistake. Don't think that after you have perfected either your character or your intellect or both, you don't need the Torah because you always need Torah to look into its mitzvah, to look at its understanding. Why? Because it always adds to your character development. That's an important way of saying And I might have said you always need Torah because Hashem just said you have to study Torah. But the Rabbi is pointing out part of the error in that whole claim is that a philosopher could ever really think to himself, I've achieved perfection. That thought is, in fact, itself an error, and that's why you always need Torah to show you higher and higher and better and newer ways 
of becoming more and more perfected, and therefore, you're always going to have to have your Hashem, Vesur Meira, you're always going to have to use Torah as the vehicle for learning better how to have proper awe of Hashem, and how to avoid and stay away from evil. The Torah will be a cure for your body, and a Shikui, a tonic for your bones. Meaning it'll keep you on the right path, and it'll keep you going in the right direction, and therefore earn you hashkacha, and therefore really, in the Ralbag's understanding, help you avoid illnesses that you might otherwise have gotten. You have to serve Hashem with your fortune, and from the first things of all of your tivuah, of all of your grain, this is a reference, according to Ralbag, to truma, and to the fact that we give gifts to Hashem. I just, a brief note, note the Gemara says, this is not the Ralbag, but the Gemara says on mehonecha, the Gemara says, don't read it as honecha, read it homiletically, as gronecha, meaning use your throat, to serve Hashem, and that's a one. This is a, a source pasuk that many chazanim enjoy. Many who lead the congregation with their beautiful voices. I am not one of those, so therefore it doesn't quite work for me. But that is what uh, the Gemara suggests about the pasuk. The Ralbag here takes a moment to note that when we give the first of everything to Hashem, it has two purposes. One purpose is it reminds us that we have to turn everything towards Hashem, which fits very well into the perek that it reminds us that. We have to understand that all of our tuah comes not only because there are laws of agriculture and we figured out how to plant seeds better and we figured out how to irrigate better and we figured out all of these things better, how to fertilize the fields better. All of that may be true. He doesn't reject any of that. But we also have to understand that there's a matter of hashkacha, there's a matter of divine providence affecting all of this as well. And that's part of why we give the gifts, the truma to the Kohen and the Maser to the Levi. But in addition to the reasons for those reasons for the tithes, he also says, which is a common theme in other commentators as well, another aspect of this here is that in giving it to these people, we will be developing a relationship with them since they are the expected teachers of Torah because they were told basically not to have uh, permanent property in the land of Israel. That wasn't their job in life. Their job in life wasn't to make sure the land of Israel was fully inhabited in the way that ordinary habitation is. Their job was to have places to live but to focus mostly on the study of Torah and the teaching of Torah and the spreading of Torah. By giving truma and masa, by tithing properly and appropriately, first we do the right thing with our own property, but also we are meant to develop a relationship with these people so we can learn from them. I note this, again, I have made a practice and an effort to relate things most, more consciously than perhaps sometimes we do to our own lives, certainly in Mishle, it's a place to do it. Okay, it certainly is a word that I need to avoid now as well. It's a place to do it, and in this case, the question would be, to what extent do we structure our lives, not just to occasionally hear rabbis speak, or even regularly hear rabbis and other figures of Torah speak. I don't want to use the word rabbis anymore for that, but the word, the, the rabbis of some, but other figures of Torah Tashem who are purveying, who are, who are spreading God's Torah to speak, but to develop relationship with them. Relationships in which we have back and forth and give and take, in which we grow from that interaction. So that would be, according to Rel Bag, Part of what's meant in this pasuk tet, Mirishi called tuatecha, giving the tithes. Vimalu asamecha sova, v'tiroshi kavecha yefrotu, and your storehouses, your barns will be filled with grain, and your vats will burst with new wine. And this is according to Ralbag, uh, just a fulfillment of the things that we've spoken about now. That the more we have a dvekut b'Hashem, the more we cling to Hashem the more we're going to get better outcomes. And the question of whether this conforms to our reality that we see now, that comes up already in the next passage, and we'll see where it comes from. The Rabbi says, on Hashem Don't reject and don't be upset by 
the discipline of Hashem Musar Bini and don't abhor his rebuke. Right? Don't Musar Hashem Bini Al Tikach Al Timas. Don't reject the Musar and Al Takot. Nobody be disgusted by the Tochachan. That comes already into the question of what happens if things don't go well. Rabak seems to be having this view that it's all simple. I do what Hashem wants and I think about Hashkachan. I pay attention to Hashkachan. Everything goes well. That would be true if we were people, the kinds of people who have removed almost all evil from us. We've noted the Rabak thinks that everybody has things to work on, but let's suppose we, it's almost as if we think of ourselves as being 95, 96, 97% good, and then if something goes wrong in our lives, we tend to be upset about it. Rabak points out if that's what happens, then we will lose in many cases the purpose and the utility for why Hashem chose to give us that suffering to begin with. In the Ralbag's understanding, all of this suffering is Musar and Tochachat. Musar and Tochachat are not yis, are not suffering. The truth is the word for suffering that we use in Hebrew is Yisurim, which is also not suffering. Uh, musar and, and Tochachat. Tochachat is, admo- is admonishment and Musar is uh, disciplining, as the English, as the JPS English had it. Disciplining is what you do to somebody to try to teach them a lesson. So therefore, in that case, the Rebbe Bag would be saying to himself that Mishle is understanding the sufferings that come, the bad times that come, as God's ways of disciplining us towards something. Rebbe Bag says if you reject it and get upset about it and just assume at that it is wrong or undeserved, not only will you have a bad experience of it, but you won't get the message of it. This is a message that is, in fact, close to my heart in many occasions. I often wonder if... When we have good times, we assume that means that God thinks that we're fine. And when we have bad times, we assume that it's wrong and unfair. How would it happen that a God who does not in the current eras, and by which we mean the last 3,000 years, 3,000 years? A little less than that. In the last 22, 23, 24, 2500 years, has not spoken through prophets, how would Hashem communicate with us? And that is where, this is where I think Rel Bag is making a point. If you reject it as wrong and undeserved, you won't get to the point of it. But what if the point of it, what if there was a point to it? Uh, in the small, in the small event, uh, you know, somebody gets run over by a car, God forbid, I'm not wishing it on anybody, and they break their leg and they have great suffering, they spend a year and a half recovering from it, but it turns out that they were locked into a job that was making them unhappy, making everybody around them unhappy, and in the recovery process, they were forced to shift jobs and professions, and now it's all working out better for everybody involved. Is that Musar Hashem, or is that undeserved suffering, or is it a mix? So I don't know the answer to that in any of those particular instances, but that is what I think Rolbag is saying, that in rejecting it and being embittered by it and, and refusing to see any value in it, one can, in fact, lose the message of it, and then it will really just be pointless because you won't have gotten the point. Because when Hashem provides disciplining or rebuking or admonishment, it is a sign of God's love, and it is, specifically, Rabbi points out, like a father with a child. When a father does punish, punishes a child, it's never because the father doesn't like the child. It's because the father is trying to find the way to teach the child the better ways to act. And in fact, those children who are neglected don't learn any of these lessons. I remember many times hearing Dr. Pelkovitz of YU pointing out that the studies show that between children who are abused and children who are neglected, the abused children do better over over to, uh, long, long term and over average. It's not every neglected, not every abused child does better than every neglected child, but on average, the results, the outcomes are generally better. And the reason is, that, and I'm not promoting abuse. But the reason seems to be 
that abused children at least know their parent is involved with them, and neglected children have no sense of that. And that's part of what I think Rabbi might be pointing out here. That's what the Tukhacha of Hashem is. It's Hashem as a father, metaphorically, trying to help us learn to be better. How happy, how wonderful it is it for a person who finds Chokhmah and who finds uh, Tvuna, finds all the things that we want, finds the wisdom and the insight to understand where to go and what to do. Because its reward, its merchandise, is better than the merchandise of money. And from gold, uh, oh, I'm sorry, and it's better than its yield, its tvua, its results is better than gold, is greater than gold. This is wisdom we're talking about, or Torah. The Rabbah goes, is comfortable with either interpretation, perhaps even prefers the Torah interpretation. It's more valuable than jewels and precious stones. All the things that you think you want are not as valuable as this. I'll go on another passage or two and then pause to think about what the, the point of these psukim is. You get long life, as Bag had said early in the Pesuk Bet. He thinks this means literally long life. That is a central point of keeping Torah, because by getting long life, you will continue to be able to grow and develop in your service of God. And then as a secondary outcome, as a secondary uh, value of it, you'll also get wealth. Series of Pesukim, and this and the Rabbah reads them exactly this way, a series of Pesukim coming to try to remind us that understanding Torah and understanding God and understanding the true wisdom of the world is in fact more valuable than any monetary results that we could have. That's as far as Rabbah goes. I just want to go a step further to consider the extent to which or to think about how much or to, I guess, from my perspective, to be upset about how little that is seen as true in our times. First, just in terms of defining what is, let's assume that Mishle accepts and realizes that people have to work for their subsistence level of living, whatever subsistence would be, and a little more than that. But how much or how many people do we know who are working and striving and seeking and spending all their time just amassing more and more money or looking for more and more money, not being satisfied with the amount of money that could that could support a lifestyle that previous generations could not even have imagined having. And then the question becomes, at what point do we say that one's working for more money, making sure to earn more money is an expression of the exact opposite attitude to what you have in Mishlei here? Mishnah here was saying that the study of Torah and the finding of wisdom and the understanding of wisdom is more valuable than money. If you have, uh, I don't want to pick numbers because everybody is in a different situation, they have different financial situations, but if you have a, a fully comfortable lifestyle with no significant worries about the future, and you're saving and you're this and you're taking care and you're doing what you have to do, to what extent do we value wisdom and Torah and does that infuse what we search for? When we're sitting around on a Shabbos, at a Shabbos table, when we're sitting around on a Shabbos afternoon, we have leisure on a Sunday afternoon. Are we thinking to ourselves, if I said to you, you know, there's a way on a Sunday afternoon, you spend two hours a day, two hours every Sunday for a year, you would get another $200,000. I expect most people would do that. But if I said, if you spend two hours every Sunday afternoon on studying Torah, you'll find a wealth of Torah knowledge, and you'll be much more advanced in your Torah knowledge than you were a year before. That, that's a choice people tend not to make. All of that, I think, is buried in these pukim of Kitov Sachra, from Kitov Sachra, Mishar Kasef, and that Kol Chafatzecha Leishuba, all of what you want, is not, does not weigh up, does not measure up to it. Pasig Yudzayin, now, Dirachecha, Darachei Noam, Vichol Nik Tivoteha, Shalom, 
one of the things to know about Torah is that its ways are ways of pleasantness. This is a pleasant people know, and uh, and all of its paths are peace. Ralbag thinks that this is an expression of the fact that if you pay attention to Torah properly and you treat Torah properly and you follow Torah properly, it, it's not hard. It's not like Torah asks you to do things that are against your instincts. And he quotes the Pesach on the Torah where the Pesach Torah points out that in the Torah's time when the Torah was given, a common form of worship was sacrificing one's children to their idols. And God doesn't ask for anything like that. Compared to that, it is certainly true that following Torah is easy and pleasant. In addition to that, in addition to that, the Radak says that if you follow it properly and you don't take it lightly and you do it fully and you invest yourself in it, it in fact produces bodily, physical, and and social and political peace and goodness and everything going well and it sets up society in the best way possible. And in that way then, in that way then, it's you, you don't know why you're doing it. You don't maybe understand fully how it's working. But what it's working to do is to produce an outcome of a society and of a personal life that is better and happier and more peaceful than it would have been otherwise. And that's why it's a tree of life to those who hold fast to it and who support it and keep it in their hearts and do all the things one would need to do to make it a center and a focal point of their lives, that will produce the kind of life that we are, that the Ralbag is talking about. New topic now, Pasigitet, the Ralbag is going to move into a discussion of nature to some extent. Hashem Yasad Eretz, Konen Shamayim Bitvuna. Hashem founded the world with wisdom and set up the heavens with greater insight. Bidato, Tamut Nivkau, Ushkakim Yurf Afutal. With his, uh, knowledge and the depths burst apart in the skies, distilled the dew is what the JPS has it as Radak takes all of that. Radak contrasts excuse me, the kind of knowledge that comes from the earth itself, which we today might call nature and the regularity of nature. You can get from that a wisdom. You can study nature and come to understand. Now, Rabag thinks you're going to come to understand the fact that there's a God, there's a creator. You'll see the regularity of the world and you will assume that it has to come from a creator, from a figure who put it together. This is, I just, the Rabbi doesn't mention this because he's living in the 1300s, but it's a s- s- surprising difference. It is a sharp, it's at sharp, sharp odds, let's say, with what happens today. And I think, there's a personal theory, it may be wrong, but I think that part of what happened is that science at some point in the 1700s got stuck on the belief in God. Not that they stopped believing in God, many of them still believe in God, but they came to understand that if you, insist on inserting God into the scientific picture, you walk into your studies with all sorts of assumptions. You think God works this way, and therefore you assume nature will have to work this way, and it turns out not to be right, and it closes your eyes to other more valid possibilities. And therefore what they said was, the most productive way to study to study the world that they still thought God created is to take God out of the equation, simply study what is find the causation from one to the other as best we can and build up laws of nature as best we can from there. For many scientists, that's still true. That's still the way you work it. And then you come to the question of that. It's a completely different question. So periodically you will find in various publications that, that scientists will publish things saying this whole issue of the contra or the the dilemma between faith and, and science is completely ridiculous because they study different things. There are still scientists who understand that and know that and say that. But Many scientists have made the jump to say, we see such causality and such regularity, there is no God. It's just the way nature works. 
and part of the flaw in that reasoning is what the Rabbi here assumes. The Rabbi is saying the regulatory nature is a thing that God put into nature so that we would come to understand in order for us to turn then and realize that there's a creator behind it. Because the question of regularity and where regularity comes from is one that science, those scientists who are saying that they could be atheists or whatever they could be are rejecting as a question. It's just you have regularity. And that possibility of regularity forming on its own was one that was completely alien to people in the time of Rabag. They just didn't think that there was such a thing. Uh, and it, it's a topic that remains today. I don't believe it has been settled. I don't believe scientists, I don't, obviously it's not I'm a, fa- a person of faith. I hope I'm a person of faith. Don't believe the scientists have grappled with this, but it highlights for us one of the places where they've fallen down in their thought process. They're not thinking through as carefully. They simply stop their thinking at a certain point by saying, yeah, that's what nature does. And you say, how come nature does that? Where does nature happen from? Where did nature come from? They say, that's not a question we can deal with, which is fine. It may not be a question they can deal with, but then the answer of God is no worse than answer. They're just saying, well, this is all that there is. And and for Rabag, it wasn't only that it wasn't a worse answer, it was a much better answer because things have causes. And that was assumed, well, going back to Aristotle, the idea that things have causes all the way back to a first cause was already there. The other piece of Rabag, though, is that in addition to the regularity of nature providing us with an opening to see God from within the world, the reference or the immediate parallel, not the parallel, the second half of the Pasuk, referring to that the heavens will rain down dew, according to Rabbi, is that in addition to us being able to figure out some stuff on our own, is that God sends down wisdom and knowledge and understanding um, from the heavens. And he refers to it as tal. He understands that Mishnah refers to it as tal, as dew, because Tal is everywhere. It's a mist that's throughout the, 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 the skies, as opposed to referring to uh, rain, which rain comes down in specific discrete drops and in specific discrete places. But Tal is everywhere, and it's just out there in the world, meaning for Ralbag, that if we do our best to study and to understand nature and to seek God within nature, not only will we find it within the nature that we're studying, but also we will benefit, be benefited by Hashem from above, as it were, by just being surrounded by these insights into God and nature and the way God interacts with the world that we could not have necessarily gotten to on our own. Don't let them disappear. Don't let them fall away. Don't lose sight of them and hold on to them for resourcefulness and insight is the JPS uh, English they'll provide life for your soul and grace for your neck people will see them on you and they'll respect you for having these ideas and for knowing these ideas you will become a person that people respect not only will people see and respect you Rabag comes to believe again he's hampering he's not hampering he's hammering on Hashkacha he believes there will come a point how you know when this point is for yourself he doesn't discuss here, he may have discussed it in his philosophical works, but he thinks that you will walk la vetach with confidence and with security, and your legs will not be uh, plagued, will not be injured. And he says, when you lie down, you won't be afraid. You lie down, you'll sleep, and your sleep will be pleasant. It's a sense of security, and he suggests that it's a sense of security. He, the example he gives is, even as you travel along the road, and you have to stop and those that you didn't have any hotels or inns everywhere, maybe you have to stop and just sleep on the side of the road, and ordinarily you might have to worry about robbers and thieves and things like that. 
according to Ralbag, if you reach this level of involvement with Hashem and of feeling this Hashkacha, you will sleep pleasantly and well without any worry about that. You'll just have the certainty that Hashem will protect you. How you get to that level of sense of Hashkacha, the Ralbag doesn't elaborate. But that is how we understand the Pasuk of Mishnah. And therefore, what he is understanding to be true is that Hashkacha is an active force that comes up often and frequently in our times. Don't worry about some sudden fear or about the, the evildoers uh, suddenly and stormily coming up. Why? Hashem will be there to protect you. Hashem will protect you from being captured. That's what he means by this active Hashkacha. We're going to get off Hashkacha for a second, but we will come back to it at the end of the chapter. At the end of this chapter, so Rabbi isn't done with Hashkacha yet, but now he turns his attention to um, that Hashem will protect you. And then once you're a person of this kind of Hashkacha, you have this protection. The next question is, who do you share it with, or who do you disseminate it to? And that's Pasuk of Vav, Pasuk of Zion, don't withhold good from those who deserve it. If you have the power to give it, don't tell your friend to go and come back, I'll give it to you tomorrow, when you have it, now. These two psukim are talking about sharing something good or benefits, the literal meaning would be in terms of financial benefits. Ralbag thinks he's talking about the kind of wisdom we've talked about now. And he's talking about, for Ralbag, whether political wisdom or social wisdom or the more specifically narrowly religious kind of wisdom that we connect to religion. And Ralbag thinks the Torah gives you all of those insights and therefore, he says, you're required to share it with those who are ready for it, which is always the bugaboo, the problem in trying to say how much you should spread knowledge or not spread knowledge. And that's always the kind of the um, dialectic I'm not sure it's dialectic the, 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 the balance between esotericism and exotericism. Exotericism meaning the idea that we'd like to have Torah be spread as widely as possible and have as many people as possible know Torah. But esotericism says we recognize that there are those aspects of Torah for which some people aren't ready and then it's not only not worth it to teach it to them. It might be wrong to teach it to them because they get the wrong impression, the wrong opinion. And there are many such categories. The Rabbi here is certainly is assuming or takes for granted that we are talking here about those who are ready for it, which would then mean you might be able to be more neatov to withhold good from not be Allah, from those who are not ready. And those people you wouldn't teach things to. So it's not true that if you have an insight into some situation, somebody asks you a question about it, you're required to answer. It depends. You have to make some evaluation and how you assume and what you make and what you know about the person. You have to make some evaluation that this is the kind of thing you're not ready to answer to that person at that time. And then you have to find a way to get away from it. Don't plan evil on your friend. Uh, and he is living securely with you, and don't fight with a person for no good reason if he didn't do bad to you. And this is obvious, and Rabbi says little of import on these two psukim, except for the fact that he notes, what he says is, that if you do it for no good reason, um, he says it's, it's just because it's disgusting. Somebody's living nicely and securely with you. Why are you doing evil or thinking evil with them? And then when it says, he notes that Mishlei, he points out, Mishlei says, don't fight with a person for no good reason. The other, he doesn't, he doesn't make this explicit, but the corollary of that is, if you have a good reason, there are times when it's appropriate and okay to fight with somebody. We don't look for fights. We're not looking to promote fights. We're not looking to continue fights if there's a way to get out of it. But the whole idea of 
avoiding fights is not absolute. It's al tariv chinam. Don't do it for no good reason. Don't be jealous of a person who's robbing and, th- and, and thieving and stealing and doing the wrong thing financially and don't choose any of his ways. Because Hashem finds an abomination in this devious man as intimate with a straightforward. I pointed out when I talked about this once pre- recently, pointed out the ability to avoid being jealous of people who, of thieves and stealers is not as simple as it sounds. Because if they're stealing openly, then you might say, well, he's a bank robber, he's a thief. But very often, Ish Hamas are people who have, and perhaps against their will, perhaps they think of themselves as good people, but gone over the lines of law and are making money in ways that are either illegal, or if not illegal, intuitively morally wrong, and therefore shouldn't be done. Certainly over the line illegal. Problem is that if they're doing something over the line illegal and have not yet been caught, if it happens for a year, two years, three years, you can resist it. But once it's going on for five, ten years, then for people around those people, it becomes a situation where, why would I be an idiot not to jump in on this? The government's not not enforcing it. These people are making a killing. It may eventually collapse, but why shouldn't I get in and get out before it collapses? That, I think, is what Mishlei is saying here, is don't be jealous of those people. Don't choose any of their ways. The Rabag says that as well, although his examples couldn't be things like the derivatives market or the home mortgage uh, system or any of the crises we have in our days where the first people who went into it probably were doing right and fine and good, but they started making money. The pressure to make that money, continue making that money, would lead them to the pushing of the lines, to pushing out the edges of the envelope and then eventually just breaking through and doing things that are clearly financially mistaken and wrong and evil. And then there are other people who get drawn in because these people are making all this money. First year of a bubble, you don't jump in. Second year of a bubble, you don't jump in. Eventually, you want to jump in. Well, Bob's example is, let's say a person of wrongful economic attitudes bribes the local king or magistrate for some job. He gives them a great big present. You might think the way you have to now operate in business is to give presents to these people and to give bribes so otherwise you can't do business and then you may be living beyond your means and that may eventually lead you to have to do wrong things like stealing and, and cheating in order to make up for all the gifts you had to give. It's a, it's a cost of doing business. That underlying motto and theme is one that resonates with me very greatly. The whole question of how much does the ethics of those around us infect us to the point that we say it's the cost of doing business? We might have originally thought of it as wrong, and we get swept up in the idea that this is the way we have to do business, and therefore we have to do it this way. Complicated question. There are things that are the cost of doing business and that are not so evil and terrible that we would say maybe one should do this. But there are other things that are over that line, and that's uh, where you have to constantly check yourself and see where you are and that's what this passage I think is talking about don't be jealous of people who are doing the wrong thing and are financially devious and wrongful in order for you to try to get it I read that Rabag thinks he says that Hashem punishes his punishment is in the house of a Rasha he notes that it's a singular here. He claims because not every Rasha will get their punishment in this world, and that's the question of Rasha Vitovlo. He thinks that there are good reasons why Rishaim would in this world not get their punishment. It might be that they're getting all the reward for whatever good they've done, and then eventually they'll get their punishment in the world to come. That's why it's singular. But but the household of the righteous will be blessed. There it's in plural, and he says that by and large, he thinks that Tzadikim will get their rewards. What he means by that is unclear. It could be that he thinks that Anytime we see somebody suffering, it probably, it seems to mean 
that that person had. Now, Rashad doesn't have to be a general categorization of the person. It means they have something that needs to be improved. And since Rabbi thinks we all have things we need to be improved, he would perhaps suggest that Yisurim, that the problem of suffering is never actually a problem because it's always true that you have things you need to be to, to improve. Right? The, the founding, founding assumption of challenging uh, Sadiq Viralo, a righteous person who has evil, bad, painful things happen to him, is that the person is, in fact, so righteous that there's no way he could possibly deserve some or need some admonishment, some improvement. Ralbag seems not to take that to accept that possibility. When there's bad things happening, that household is has some resha in it. He doesn't mean this, by the way, to mean we therefore should reject that person. They are obviously an evildoer. It would have to be in some areas there's resha that's being wiped out by tochach Hashem. And the good, he thinks, is coming, will come to all, or pretty much all, of the houses of Tzadikim. Hashem will, to those who are Leitzim, Hashem will also create, Latzon will do wrong to them, and help them find sort of the result, the outcome of their actions. And Hanavim, and those who are modest and humble, they will find grace. The wise will eventually, at least, find honor, they will get honor, because people will honor them. Again, if you follow the Ralbag's perspective, the wisdom of Torah and the wisdom of being involved with God produces not just Hashgachan providence with good outcomes, but also creates a character that other people admire and respect and find pleasant to deal with and to be around, whereas the Ksilim will uh, get for themselves Cologne will get with themselves disgraced, and then the real box says either it means literally, or it's sort of hyperbole it as a, a, an, an excessive expression of what will actually happen, but that at least eventually, the Xilim, the fools, those who, the dullards is the JPS English, those who do not follow Hashem, will reap the outcomes of their way of life as well. Uh, tomorrow, Perk Dalit. Have a great day.